You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Do you want to be famous or do you want to be an actor? Very few truly achieve both, or for most of us, it's a choice. And the direction we choose impacts the roles and opportunities that we pursue going forward. Today's guest has been presented with both during his career and came to discover which one mattered more to him. Hey, my name is Ben Curtis. I live in Rhinebeck, New York. I am from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I am a actor, a self-care and success coach. And I'm a wellness professional and speaker. So I get to do what I love and help other people do the same. In the early 2000s, Ben was training to be a serious actor at NYU. But one commercial audition for Dell Computers completely changed the trajectory of his life and career. He became the face of the computer company, performing in about 26 national commercials over the span of four years. In this third and final episode of the Bettering Ourselves, Bettering Our Careers series, Ben shares with us the lessons he learned from reaching a level of fame that he never imagined. But he also talks about how it led him down some dark paths that took him years to resolve and come out of. I just signed a half million dollar contract with Dell to continue, or I was about to sign one. And like we were, it was just going to set us up financially. It was going to be amazing. But I just remember like wanting it to all stop. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode of Why I'll Never Make It, an award-winning top 25 theater podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer talking with fellow creatives each episode of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe to bonus episodes and offer your own financial support to the production of this podcast. Again, that's why I'll never make it.com. Welcome, Ben. It is so great to have you here. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, we are two fellow Southern boys growing up. I grew up in Alabama. You, you grew up in Tennessee. Was it a big move for you to come up north to the Big Apple? Well, as they say down south, oh, Lordy, was it ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yet, um, it's it's where I always wanted to live. We had one actor and then our entire family. We have a huge Southern family. I mean, Blanche Dubois is written after a member of my family. Oh, wow. I'm even related to Tennessee Williams down the line on two sides of my family. Found out my aunt and my uncle who are married to each other are both related to him separately on both sides of his family. So it's this deep Southern thing. But we had this one member of our family named Augusta Dabney and she moved to New York and she married Kevin McCarthy. And she was on Broadway and she was in All My Children, all these soap operas. And so we'd go visit her and she always had soap stars around. But just New York City and that energy, I was just 
I was always a yes. And it scared, scared my parents a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was the same way. I first went to New York on a uh, school choir trip. And that was, you know, 17, 18 at the time, first time to New York. And I loved it from the get-go. So it was definitely a place I knew I wanted to be. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know right away. I think when you walk into New York, you're either like, oh, no, we'll stay here, but we're leaving soon. Or you're like, <laughs> I have arrived. <laughs> right? It's kind of one of those things. I'm sort of in like both places now, but yeah, it's, it's really great. And, and I actually am unusually a well-traveled child, especially being from the South, right? Like a lot of my, like my grandfather even sat me down and told me how I was kind of, uh, really letting the family down. It was really a disservice to move North. It, it would put pressure on my family financially, emotionally, all these things. Um, so it really was, and I think I was only one of two kids in my graduating class and I went to an all boys private school in Tennessee and a lot of them, it, it was also a boarding school. So we had kids from all over the country and even world, um, Ted Turner went there and gave a lot of money to the school. So it had all these like rich boy leaders, elite thing going on. And there's only one other guy that went to New York. Everyone was like, what are y'all doing? You know, where, what are you doing? But it's for acting. Thank God there's a couple people who had studied in New York. Um, my friends, Scott Fillers and Lindsay Fusell, and they studied with a lot of people from Circle in the Square. And uh, they just said, no matter what you do, even if you don't get into NYU, just go to New York. If you want to yeah, do I mean, theater, just go to New York. Yeah, yeah. For, for theater, it is the place to go, either that or L.A., depending on what kind of acting you want to do. And even now, Chicago. I mean, I, and that's just how single-minded, that's where we think. But it's just, I, I just want to say that for all of us out there, you really can be an actor anywhere in the world now. You can be a working actor on stage. And I'm learning about you know, the cruise thing, I never did that, but that's another way to literally travel the world and get paid to do what you love. Yeah, there's so many different avenues. And for you, that gets us into the first story that you want to talk about, and that's you studying at NYU for acting. And it was during that time that you found out about a little commercial audition that happened to be for Dell Computers, and it became something, I assume, much bigger than you ever thought it was going to be. Mm, bigger than anyone ever thought it was going to be, <laughs> yeah. yeah. What was that audition process like? Well, I just, I want to take us from Chattanooga right before I went to NYU. So... I was a professional magician from the age of 13 onwards. So I was already making money performing. I was supporting, I was paying my own insurance, car insurance um, and gas. I had my own gear and I was uh, in bands. So I was learning how to literally produce stuff from nothing. <laughs> and I'd study a lot of magic and I studied like mechanics and I studied, I went to magic camp in New York and I had even um, like a, business of magic class where suddenly I was like, Oh my God, this is, you really need a business mind. And my parents told me I always had that. Like I, they said I would like put ads in the newspaper and have my own yard sales and be like marketing and upselling my gaming systems. And so that was in me. And I think that was really important. So getting into NYU alone was like, you know, 2% of people get accepted coming from the South. I didn't have a musical theater background, but I had to sing. I did big news from parade and uh, I did, I had to do two contrasting monologues and I just, but I felt like 
maybe I had it. My dad really believed in me. And, and the fact that I got in was huge, but then we couldn't afford it. And then I got in an acting scholarship and it still wasn't enough money. It was like $2,000, right? The school is 30,000 then. It's 60,000 now or more. That was already three times anything else. And um, again, why my grandfather was like, just stay, we'll get in state, it's free. Like, come on. But everyone I met was going to New York, even from other schools. So we really just said, we'll do whatever it takes. And we just bit, my dad and I took off tons of loans like you have to do now in America. And um, so I really worked hard while in school, even though there was a no audition policy to make sure that I was going to have something there when I graduated. And it was like the old like walk in the office and hand them a, a headshot thing. Uh, and they're like, we don't do that here, you know, but somehow I got in and got an audition and this and that. And then my best friend who is in Stern School of Business started going on auditions. And I was like, dude, you're a business major. What the hell? Come on, like hook brother up. And uh, he, it turns out his friend's mom from New Jersey was sending him out. And I was like, well, can I meet her? So she and I met and she sent me on something as an extra just to make sure I'd show up and just right off the bat, I booked a role and then another one. And then I think it was, her name's Renata English. She had a company, she has a business, Friendly Faces Management. They run out of Monmouth Beach, New Jersey, but she represents children of all ages really. And I was 19. So it's just on the cusp of being able to do like old teenagers. And I looked younger. Um, and then she had this, so I was freelancing. I didn't have an agent. She sent me out on uh, an audition for Dell computers. She was like, they're going for like 13 to 17 year olds. So, you know, act young, dress, dress younger, shave. You know, I don't even think I shaved yet. What am I talking about? Um, you know, whatever I did to try to look younger. And I got there, I was the only actor without my mom because every other kid was under 18 and needed to have a guardian present. There was kids of all shapes and sizes and colors. And I just did me. I knew I was really good at manipulating my parents for getting what I wanted. I had like, you know, I had the business plan laid out. I had the like, I knew what I wanted. I like worked my parents for my Christmas gifts for a year. My sister was like, this is ridiculous. He's getting so much stuff. You never gave me these things. <laughs> and I was like, well, ask and you shall receive. You know, you didn't ask for it. And so, uh, you know, I think getting turned down is a really good, it gave me the resilience just to show up no matter what, right? And have fun and just be me. And that's all I could do. That's all I knew how to do at that point. And um, I got called back and then the next one and then the next one, I think, I believe it was two or three callbacks, which is kind of rare in a commercial audition. Usually they've made up their mind by then. And it was like three or four kids. And we were, again, all different shape, sizes and colors. So I was like, oh my God, they don't even know what they want. And clearly it's not going to be personal. Like maybe it's just going to be like, we want this archetype of human for this role, right? Right. Commercials are so specific like that. Oh, my God. As far yeah. as age, demographic and all, everything that goes into it. And it really is nothing personal. I think that's the, one of the biggest lessons I got from doing commercial auditions. Yeah. It really just isn't personal. Yeah. And, I mean, it helps to be good or, or like, to, sure. to have the tools. And, I mean, it's I, I learned I had something I didn't know, a, a gift that doesn't always come naturally for people, which is being able to audition cold right? To just show up and do something. 
I've learned that's kind of a gift and to a fault, right? To where I didn't always do complete work. So my work as an actor was to start doing complete work before an audition. So for this one, yeah, I really got to just show up and be me. And I just felt like I knew how to like this script was like, I was like, oh man, I know how to work these parents. I'm going to be super cute. I've got it all set up. And that was the Dell computer commercial. And, um, but what was also a little scary about it, um, Patrick too, and all you actors listening was I was, I was not yet a union member and it was during the huge union strike. So this was around the year 2000, um, really like the, the biggest, longest one, I think of our lifetime or generations here. So I asked the producers, I asked my manager, I asked the agents, everyone involved, can I do this legally with integrity, you know, and not be a union scab or whatever these horrible things I'm hearing. Like I was 19. I was like, I don't know. I'm just trying to do my job. Right, you right? didn't want to ruin your career before it started. Yeah. And everyone said, yes, you're fine. You're fine. Well, would you have it that a couple of years later, I got called into the board the Screen Actors Guild, and I had to present my case before them, and they had evidence that I had signed that I didn't work. Oh, that's what it was. I had to sign later that I didn't work during the strike, but I had because the strike was closing up. But they said it doesn't matter. Like at that end, you weren't. You were fine. Everyone advised me to sign, um, and so that alone there was, it just became like a black and white legal thing is that was not like, technically I did work during that time, no matter what. And so I was, uh, found guilty of breaking the union rule or something. And so I told my manager, I was, I was in Amsterdam and, and this incredible advanced theater program studying physical theater and Shakespeare. And I got this message and I said, you know, you guys handle this. You told me I was okay. And um, they worked out a deal where I could keep auditioning. Uh, I'd lose my union status for six months. I'd have to rejoin, pay all over again. And then it was like I was on probation for a year or something and I had to rejoin, Gosh. which was so much money. And by that time I had lost it and spent it or lost a lot of it. So I, it was really detrimental. And, and again, like a big, like welcome to the industry. <laughs> Right. Be careful what you're getting into. I was like, oh, this is really intense. I just it, it, was it really wanted because to do a commercial because you were had gained some fame and recognizable by this point. So probably went after you. Probably. I mean, yeah. they did thorough work, too. So, yeah, maybe they made an example of me. Who knows? But I mean, truth be told in their in their systems, I was technically doing that. Whatever they had said I was was true. And yet. Um, I was just told that it was going to be okay. <laughs> right, you know? right. So it was very confusing. Um, and, you know, I took that, I, t I, I'm really proud union member. I'm, you know, unions could not be more important. And yet like it's, it can be really daunting to join one because you, owe, you owe them money and there's rules and you really want to play by the rules. Right. But it's, it's to protect everyone. So in, in the long run, I understand and I never blame them. I really blame my team or the people who, who I was communicating you. with. 
And they maybe had ulterior motives too. Like, yeah, yeah, this is just a huge deal. Just keep signing. You're fine. You're fine. You know? <laughs> right. Just keep making the money. Yeah. 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 And boy, did it make money. So it, it hit and then a holiday one hit and and no one really knew, Dell included, how big it was going to be. But I they did have Bennett Miller directing the commercials right off the bat. It was just me and a house out on Long Island. And he directed Capote and he was good friends with Philip Seymour Hoffman as well. And to this day, I've never gotten to work with him um, since those three commercials. But he was one of my favorite directors I've ever worked with. We just we hit it off. And he was the first one to also be like, hey, they really want to try to keep this away from the Spicoli thing. Apparently, we're getting too stoner for them. So we need to like tone that down and just be more, you know, your quirky self. Mom, dad. Hey, it's me, Steve. This year, to avoid any confusion, I'm putting my wish list on video. All I want is a computer. I looked back. I was like, wearing a hemp necklace in those yeah. commercials. I'm like, what, come on. This kid yeah, was and, clearly getting bread to smoke a bong, you know? Yeah, the character was definitely in that Bill and Ted's adventure kind of. Yeah, so be, I definitely had that. Yeah, I had that look. And I loved Bill and Ted, so that made sense. I now, played guitar. Now, <laughs> What was the the first time that you realized, I guess, that you were famous or that you were being recognized? <laughs> That's a really great question. No one really has asked me that because I just did not know. I didn't watch TV. I was in school full time. I was at Tisch School of the Arts. I got in my dream school. I was like, don't mess this up, Ben, right? Like, you've really got, and I got some of the highest grades ever, too, because I just, I took it so seriously. And I couldn't believe that there were kids who did not. It just felt like so really like personal, even to my whole family. I'm like, we worked so hard to be here. And some kids just like buy their ways in. And, and most of them aren't actors today either. But um, I was still in the Lee Strasberg Institute, like which was where I started. So it was like suddenly I think that kids in school started treating me differently. I was I was hearing from the agents. It was gaining traction. I think I was getting some interviews. Um, there was buzz. They were starting want me to do voiceovers, and I could just feel the energy changing. Did it feel like a good change? All this new energy coming at you? It did at first. Yeah, it was awesome. It was really exciting. But there, there was a moment where I felt like, oh, wait a second, like everyone's seeing this. And but at that moment, it was cool. Except when I was at school, kids were it felt like mad at me or something or resentful that I was working and still there. But I was thinking, I mean, this is just, I just did a commercial, you know, it's going to take me forever to get my career going anyway. And I've got to pay for the school, but I, it, it was pulling at, at school a little bit too. Like it's starting to shoot more. They would fly me out to LA. So that was starting to happen. And then people would start to interview me, say like, well, blah, 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 this overnight success or this, huge story. And I started to realize that Dell's numbers were blowing up. There was a big economic crash after that time, but Dell kept soaring. Their sales went up like 60% or something during that time. They were breaking all these records. So I started to see like, oh my God, that's a big deal. My family friends were starting to ask us for things or autographs mm -hmm. or like it was, that started to happen. And then it really got, I mean, it was it, to a point where I really couldn't go outside without almost every human interacting with me as, as Steven, the Dell guy, it was, it was people, I mean, New Yorkers are pretty cool, but that role lent itself to, to being very approachable. So people would be like, Steve, 
Dave, Dave, you got the doll. That was, people loved to yell that at me. Uh, yeah. And it even when I was in Amsterdam, I was getting recognized. So it, it, it just got so big, but I never could emotionally process how big it was. I, I just, I couldn't wrap my head around it at the time. Maybe it was part of something that was keeping me safe too. And being on the tonight show with Jay Leno and Renee Russo was the other guest. It was just like a big, those things, like I was on good morning America suddenly and the today show. And, and it was, it, it just, you know, fans were outside. It was, whoa, this is getting real. And it got really fun too. It's, it's great to do what you love and talk about it. Back when I was in middle school, the class schedule only allowed for people to either be a part of band or choir. You couldn't do both. So even though I was on my way to learning the trumpet, I had to give it up in order to continue singing with the school choir, which is really where my passion and interest were. In this week's bonus episode, Ben shares a similar experience back in Chattanooga when he had to choose between playing on the school soccer team or doing theater. He couldn't do both. Well, you can guess the choice he made, but as often happens, it didn't quite turn out the way he had hoped. Now, these bonus episodes are available to anyone who becomes a monthly or yearly subscriber on Why I'll Never Make It. While I certainly enjoy producing this podcast, I'm essentially a one-man operation, and it is both costly and time-intensive to put out an episode each week. So for just a few dollars a month, you'll not only support my podcasting efforts, but you'll also get to hear audition stories and other conversations with guests that you won't get in these free episodes. So please consider lending your financial support to this podcast with a monthly or yearly subscription by going to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe, or just look for the link in the show notes. And of course, part of being famous means that people are fans of yours. They're interested mm -hmm. in you and they love it when you do things wonderful or not wonderful. Even when things fall apart, they still yeah. want to know what's going on. And you got arrested for buying marijuana. And I think because of your fame, then that was on CNN and all these other news outlets. So then that became a big story mm. and it really changed your career certainly with dell but also moving forward yeah it really did um the success was growing so much so i mean i was auditioning i auditioned for terminator 3 to be the lead young male in that i was up for party monster that kieran culkin ended up playing some really big hbo films DreamWorks had me in for things. Apparently, Steven Spielberg called my manager at one point in his office. It was so big. And, um, and yet I was really, I, I so wanted to be, you know, my, my heroes were like Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and Philip Seymour Hoffman and Daniel Day-Lewis and uh, uh, Bill Murray and, you know, those kind of, actors even johnny depp who really could could transform themselves and and did it for the art and the love of the theater and i even had a chance to meet tony randall at one point it was a gift of being the dell guy i had someone gifted me a lunch with him 
Um, and I asked him like, do I go to New York or LA? Like, I don't know what to do. My career is getting, getting really big. And he said, well, do you want to be famous or do you want to be an actor? And I said, I want to be an actor. And he said, if you're really serious about it, you know, the art and the craft, let's stay in New York, stay in the theater. I remember him saying that to me. And, um, Sometimes I kicked myself for not having gone to LA, but I just trusted my heart. So that really spoke to why I was there. And, and so it, it, was, it started to be scary that I, I felt like I was only starting to get roles as like these stoner guys and these just like idiots and these like, it just felt like, and, and what I was seeing and reading of the material in the pilots was just terrible. And I, it was depressing to me. I was like, oh my God, am I selling myself out? is what was coming up. In hindsight, I heard an interview with, um, with Susan Sarandon that said, if you get typecast and you're working, own it for as long as you can, right? Like I wish I had, I had not been so scared and just said yes to more things. Um, I was even up for old school with Will Ferrell and the role ended up being played by a brilliant African-American actor whose name I can't remember, but I was, I was happy that they they chose like what other directions they didn't necessarily need another white guy in that film either. I think he was, he was way better than I would have been. Um, so it just felt like my life was on the line and I wanted to be taken seriously. And I just felt like I wasn't, I was just this Dell dude. And I, and, and I was like, I'm studying Shakespeare. I'm like pouring my heart to the theater. Why don't you see it? And then nine 11 happened. So I was also dealing with severe post-traumatic stress that I didn't know about, to which I was using alcohol and drugs to self-medicate. And I was just becoming really unmanageable, all of it. Uh, my emotional life, my energetic life, my professional life. And if you can't take care of yourself, you really can't show up for anything or anyone else if you can't show up for yourself. So I really, getting arrested felt like a saving grace. And it, it later, <laughs> later, um, I just signed a half million dollar contract with Dell to continue, or I was about to sign one. I believe that's what it was. And like we were, it was just going to set us up financially. It was going to be amazing. But I just remember like wanting it to all stop. And I was dating a girl from, uh, she lived in Edinburgh, Scotland. And my best friend who'd taken me there, Rob Signum, also um, had Scottish ties. So we decided to wear our kilts that evening. It was his birthday. So for his birthday, we were going to wear our kilts, proper Scottish style, which is knee knickers, which is no underwear. And uh, so I was in a kilt with no underwear and I went outside to buy some, some herb for him, for us, for his birthday, some joints and the delivery service was being followed by undercover cops. And I was the guy that just happened to be buying from him. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong outfit. <laughs> uh, luckily my other close friend there, Josh Kamenko, uh, his dad was a criminal defense attorney and he was like thinking like logistically, we got to get home get him pants, get him underwear, get him safe, you know? And he brought him to the precinct and the cops were like, what is this for? And he's like, he's not wearing any underwear. And they're like, oh geez, yes, give us those. And they even said like, you're not gonna last a minute here dressed like that, you know? So they put me in my own cell and then they kind of taunted me for a while. Like, oh shit, it is the Dell guy. Look, oh man, sucks for you, you know? Dude, you're getting to sell or whatever. Yeah, they would say that. I just like, oh, come over and look at him. But I was like the animal in the cell. I'm like, wow, this is what animals at the zoo feel like. 
It really felt like that. I was like, wow, I'm just here on display. I can't go anywhere. Totally demoralized. This is what it feels like. Wow. And then I had to spend the whole weekend there because it was like a Friday night or something. Like, don't ever get arrested on the weekend. That's another lesson I learned. You'll be there all weekend. Just process in order of everyone else. And you get sent down with everyone else. And then you get kind of comfortable in a weird way, or at least I did. I was like, I, I see why people could just be like, oh, yeah, just spend another weekend in jail, blah, blah, blah. You know, who cares? Um, and then when I came out, everyone was like, why didn't you tell me? I sell weed. I smoke weed. Here's weed. Why didn't you tell us? You know? And then my agency bailed me out. They sent a lawyer. I didn't know that they knew anyone, uh, that I was even there. And luckily, a police officer told me, you know, there's press outside, so there's cameras. Just be aware. And it was. It was like coming out of a murder trial or something. Like, they couldn't wait to get me on camera. And I ended up taking that. And I, um, you know, this is all part of what the arrest was like. I wrote a one-man show. I created it called Dude, You're Getting a Cell. And I never did the full thing, but there's a 20-minute excerpt on YouTube. And um, I performed through all of this. I even wear a kilt and part of it. I do magic. I uh, I play an officer uh, who arrested me. I work through 9-11. Um, a lot of people felt sorry for me. My dad called me and said, hey, at least you got arrested in style. And I was like, man, I love this guy. That's like the coolest thing a parent can say. Like, right. what? You know, they could have been like, what's wrong with you? I mean, I was 21, so I was an adult, you know. Um, they felt really bad for me. Mm. And what's unfortunate is that your dad passed away recently. Well, it feels recent, but I think it was about 18 months ago. And he's just like a the, the my artistic muse of my life. And still is in some ways. So, um, yeah, and, he's and when it the comes biggest to, cheerleader of me doing what I love. Which is which is wonderful to have that. Yeah, in uh, it's game chain. Yeah, it's very rare. Like once Britney Spears went down shortly after that, like shaved her head and had her meltdown. Mm -hmm. And my dad, when everyone else was like, Britney, what? my dad was like, I, I, now I understand what that woman went through watching what you've gone through. You know, I don't know how anyone makes it out alive. And I have so much sympathy for her he started praying for her regularly along with me but it had a major impact and no one would hire me again i mean no one in the commercial industry yet some independent filmmakers scooped me up i got the lead role of a lifetime in a feature film with vincent pastor and frank vincent called spy the movie and um i also did a commercial for games and flicks which is an early competitor of netflix and they loved they didn't care that i got arrested for pot they like brought me weed the first weekend there they were like fine man like everyone smokes right and it's just wild now and that's what's so amazing to me about legalization of cannabis is because it's such a time waste of time money and tax dollars for everyone involved both the system the officers and criminals my god the humans right that are using this plant that it's way less harmful than alcohol and and tobacco so um I just think it's really beautiful that people are actually, you know, being pardoned and, and able to have plants in their yard legally, finally, um, because I, I, I continue and I was a white guy, right? I continue to meet so many people who have been arrested and, you know, we don't get to talk about it. So 
I, I also want to acknowledge I'm a role of privilege and it was a privilege to be able to come out of it and use it for my advantage and all of this. And so I don't take that lightly as well. And, and so I really want to, you know, arrest has an impact. I started to feel like a criminal. I started to relate to criminals more. It was easy for me. I, I was sneaky as a kid. I always thought I was going to get caught. So it kind of also felt appropriate in some way. Um, I got arrested two more times after that as well before I really hit my bottom and got better. Was it for the same thing? No, no. I think I think it was a DUI was 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 the next one. And then I didn't handle it properly. So I had a bench warrant. I jumped a turnstile. I got arrested again. And then I still didn't go handle it properly. So I was drinking outside with a buddy, got an open container check, which because of the open warrant, they had to take me back to jail. And that time I smoked a joint with the guy behind bars. Uh, that was crazy. Uh, so I had, had the cigarette and the officer brought us something else. I was like, this is no wonder people get comfortable in here, right? They just... And it's so sad that we really, and I saw that in New York City schools with the bars and the officers around and, and now in schools with guns. It's just so unfortunate, but we really do train kids for the industrial prison complex. You really get, you go through these systems and metal detectors and it, it just, and even my father-in-law worked in corrections and, you know, he, he sees how much we need reform and, and we need, um, we really need to just bring more compassion to everyone including ourselves. I mean, I've had to forgive myself for getting arrested all the time, all the time, ruined relationships, personal, romantic, professional, and just burned so many bridges. So many people wouldn't work with me after that. And yet I, I just, I really was making human mistakes. Just happened to do it under a big lens. And most people like Robert Mitchum and Robert Downey Jr. and Michael Phelps have all been forgiven and had you know, huge careers, but mine literally shut down for years. But during that time, I got to get worse and get better. Like I had to really go through my soul's journey to get better. Yeah. Each of us have our own, uh, I guess, triggers. We have our own ways that we have to work through this. And sometimes you have to go deeper into it and then you come out. Some people learn that first time, which is wonderful if they can do that. But for most of us, we have to really deal with it and go through it. Well, you had mentioned that 9-11 was happening at the same time as you were at the height of your fame with Del Guy. And obviously, 9-11 impacted not just you, but the whole country. And we were all dealing with it. But you were living in New York at the time, just a, a couple of blocks from World Trade Center. So you were very much at ground zero. Yeah. How did that tragic event, uh, I mean, were you at home at the time? Yeah, yeah, I was. Um, so I had, with some of the money, finally moved out of the dorm, NYU dorm system. My friend and I had our first come up in the financial district. We had our own apartment. It was a one bedroom. He was amazing. He basically moved into the living room and... I had the bedroom. I think I paid a little bit more. That's how we worked it out. But we were there. He was a film major as well. And uh, his name is Marcus Jones, incredible cinematographer and videographer and editor, my best friend then. And yeah, I had a class that morning. I'd overslept and I woke up 
he woke me up yelling. He was like, Ben, Ben, wake up, look, look, look. And he looked outside and there was, it looked like just smoke pouring in the air. It was the North Tower. So the way it was like, so the North was perfectly hidden on the angles of, of where of our view. So we couldn't see it. We could just see smoke and stuff. And we thought maybe it was a gas explosion or something. And so he was going to go check it out and photograph it. And he did. And I went back to bed. And then I woke up to the second one, which was the South Tower. And so I saw that explode literally from my pillow. I like opened my eyes at a direct view and um, I ran outside and I thought my roommate's dead. Marcus is dead. I ran outside. I was in sandals, I remember, and asked this lady what was going on. Everyone looked traumatized and they said, um, like a plane just hit. And I'm like, what? That's not like planes don't accidentally and i and then it started to feel like we were under attack like world war three everyone there and um like i was thinking they were going to start just bombs were going off that's what i was thinking like literally like the brooklyn bridge is going to blow up somewhere else like just all the big places and i asked this lady what was happening and she had said her husband was up at work there and i said what floor and she told me and i looked up and it was like that floor didn't exist um, I still remember her and her face and then they started to collapse and we just ran underground and immediately it filled with smoke and, but people were guiding us. They were saying, put your shirts over your face, come down here. And we ended up in a tunnel and there was an old lady suffering a severe laceration and in shock. And in that moment, um, my first aid experience, I was an Eagle Scout and I'm really active in, in scouting and, and emergency stuff. And so I knew to just treat her for shock. And that's all I could do. And then we ended up in a bank. We like burst out of this bank. And then it had just looked like doomsday, like the apocalypse outside. And it just, you know, it was, it was really horrifying. And no one knew if we could outrun smoke and debris or that the buildings had collapsed. I think only one had, and then the second one started to, and we ran. And uh, ended up, I tried to go into an NYU dorm and the financial district called water street and the like lines weren't working and the guard was like everyone's leaving dude like you need to get out of here and i saw a bus and i said where to the driver where's the bus going he said uptown get on We're going uptown and uh he wasn't stopping for anybody and i said i sir i really need to stop at union square and he's like i'm not stopping for nobody we're going uptown and and i was crying and traumatized and, and he was like holy shit are you the devil guy? <laughs> Not now. It's like, dude, I love your commercials. Oh my God, it's the devil guy. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'll drop you off wherever you want, dude. So like in that moment, being the devil guy really worked for me. And uh, he dropped me off at uh, Union Square at 3rd North at the dorm there. And I went, I found my two close friends and I said, you know, I thought Marcus was dead and about two hours later, Marcus walked in that same dorm room to the same place. He had walked all the way uptown. He had not only survived, I don't know how he had survived. He said there was literally glass exploding all around him. Like everyone was dying around him. He just ran and somehow he made it out. And he moved right back as soon as our building was deemed safe. But it literally was, um, our building was only saved because of Trinity Church, which is right there, uh, two blocks south. And that church is so old and so well built that it helped protect ours too. 
And yet, like, it felt like being at a burial ground. We had to close the blinds to have parties. And I really turned to drugs and alcohol after that. Uh, it just, I had money. I was in school still, but it, um, and I was doing on auditions all the time and interviews all the time. But it was. Um, I imagine, I mean, certainly after 9 11, it took months for that kind of normal life to come back, right? Yeah, actually, it must have. Yeah, in hindsight, actually, one of my buddies from that time, Rob Signum, was just here. I just said goodbye to him this morning. I love that guy. Um, that's why I had such a great weekend. I got to play music with my band, Dirty May, and all my best friends were here. And um, and Rob was the guy whose birthday party I got arrested at. And so we always have these wild stories to tell of our like 20s. And um, he reminded me that I slept on his floor that week. And we really bonded. He lived on 12th Street in the East Village. And we just sat on his roof. And, you know, we smelled the smells. And we just, as friends healed. And we hung out in each other's dorms. I don't know when classes started again. But just, I was just so messed up. I don't, I, that, I, I actually have a whole lapse of time somewhere. I, I remember doing a, an academic semester. But I was failing out of a lot of classes. I couldn't even show up for school at one point. It was just like. I was falling apart and I, no one told me I had post-traumatic stress disorder. It took years to figure that out. So, I mean, as far as living a normal life, to be honest, I mean, I also had to get sober for, for took years before I really could start functioning again, like an adult. I mean, whatever that means. I still try to be, I, I embrace my inner child a lot, but you know, having integrity, showing up when you say you will, showing up for your jobs, being, you know, on time in advance and, and finding my voice and myself again, because I really got lost in that world of fame. And I, I had a lot of fun. I partied really hard. I met a lot of famous people. I did all kinds of drugs. Thank God I never stuck a needle in my arm because I thought I'd never come back from it. And I met too many heroin addicts. So when it comes to the various hardships and tragedies that we've discussed throughout this conversation, do you see a, a through line or, or, or lessons that you've been able to learn as you continue to grow and, and heal from these hardships? Um, I always had a therapist and I started to get better. I did EMDR. I learned about trauma work. I realized all the work I'd done as an actor somatically with my body being connected to my body and movement and dance and the gift of, of feeling my body and my emotions was as horrifying as that was to be with. Like to have your nervous system traumatized is just, it, it feels unrecoverable. And I'm still learning about it. I'm reading and I now am a trauma informed coach. So this is why I can work with creative so well. I started just naturally working as a coach because I had a good business mind. I knew I got so many great self-care tools. I had a coach and mentor. I always had someone in my corner. And I realized I had also from my parents had so much trauma in their lives. I was in therapy since I was a little kid. I was asking to go to therapy. They were in therapy. They were the only people in our family in therapy. So we really were taught. I was taught to embrace my emotions. The bullies are people who are hurting themselves more than other people that my dad was big for the underdog that sensitive men my mom told me are beautiful and feeling my feelings is, is beautiful 
that stuff is is not taught to men or boys still today. And and that's I don't blame anyone. It's generational. It's been passed down. It's survival based. It's instinctual, but it's learned behavior. So what I learned is that I had been taught like that money was bad, that fame was bad, that success meant insecurity and out of control, that loud noises meant being unsafe, that I had to suffer in order to get by. And thank God for all this work I started to see. And, and I had done actually Landmark. I had done this incredible personal growth and development course in the World Trade Center two weeks before 9-11. And, and so my life was kind of handed to me there and taken away in the same breath. So I, I had had my light, like I'd been open to my own light and healing and possibility of what is possible in the world. And I, and I saw that I actually was a victim of my own suffering, that I'm a victim of 9-11. I used to say that, those words. And I took away the victim and I chose that I lived through an experience and I learned from it. And as I continue to reflect and talk about that, I've gained so much wisdom and tools that I continue to seek and participate in trauma-informed therapeutic experiences and somatic base. I've learned so much about the nervous system. And now I'm a better actor than I've ever been. My career is doing great. I speak all over the world. I get to talk and help people with this. I, I have many friends who are firefighters uh, from 9-11 and, and I'm a sensitive man and I never felt safe growing up. So I create safe spaces as much as I can, especially for men. Uh, but I really try to work with all kinds of people. And I feel like now it's not even like a career, like I'm a coach, but it's just a, it's an obligation to myself to take care of myself and help other people do the same. And that's yeah. something that artists don't get taught instinctually or in art school. Are you kidding me? It's not like, here's how to balance your work life environment and your checkbook and your finances and grow, you know, and market and brand and like, that's what we need. We already got the, you know, beautiful art inside of us. Yeah. Yeah. It's all the business side that really needs yeah. the most education. Today we're all content creators. It's like, what? We spend all these hours on computers editing everything we're trying to do just so we can be with each other. So I just am so grateful for the opportunities to have these conversations. You know, even if I can't see your face, those of you who are listening, just to get to be with each other and share my truth, because it's in people that have shared their truth that has really set me free. That was the story of my play, Dude, You're Getting a Cell, is that we all suffer, we all have pain, but I really believe that suffering is a choice and that it's optional and that we can also start to choose our own freedom as much as we have dealt with our own pain. And what if we started to look at, like, what if we, you know, this is called why I'll never make it. What if it's, what if we've already made it? Like, have we considered what if we're there? What if we've arrived? What would that be like? Who would we be if we had already made it? What would that feel like now? How could we be that in our lives now? And so that's where I really look for the solution and the medicine now. And that's what I try to share. And I think sharing our truth is part of that too. So I'm really grateful also for your space and your listening, your extraordinary listener. And it creates a beautiful, beautiful, vulnerable space for me to feel safe and be able to express myself here. So I'm really grateful for you. Well, I appreciate you being so open and sharing these stories. And I know that you will forever be known as the Dell Dude, 
but you've certainly grown into so much more than that. And mm. your story helps and resonates with so many people who can learn from it. Thank you. And uh, there's one other thing I want to say, you know, I've really embraced being the Dell dude. Now Dell brought me back 20 years later, like talk about like, don't say it'll never happen. You know, you never ever know. And that's really been out of my commitment to myself. They see what I'm doing in the world. And now I'm the wellness dude. I have a podcast called Dude, You're Getting Well, because I thought it would be fun to be tongue in cheek and take myself less seriously. And um, I'm creating Dude School. I'm launching in the new year. Um, place for dudes to learn from each other. There's no one in charge. I just share the tools and I lead spaces and calls. And I even have something now called the Lion's Den. And we have a lot of fun and we, we roar and we're playful and vulnerable and empowered. And there's a lot of artists in there. And yeah, I just think it's important for us to, to remember that we don't have to do this alone too. I want to, I want to remind everyone of that, that we really get to do this together now. And sometimes that takes a little work coming out of a pandemic to really pull for people, but we all need it. Thanks for joining me and Ben Curtis today. And don't forget, the conversation continues with that audition story, as well as the final five questions on the Win Me blog. You'll find a link to both of those in the show notes. Well, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Background music is by Blue Dot Sessions and John Bartman. And be sure to join me next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.